You're listening to Mysteries Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries, both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today, we will discuss the case of the torn love letters. everybody. I hope that you're kicking butt and taking names. Um, I am thrilled to be back here with you and I just want to express my sincere appreciation that you chose here of all places within the podcast universe to spend a little time with me this week. I'm going to do my best to make sure that it's worth your while, which should be pretty easy because today's episode, in a word, is wild. (laughs) Hold on to your butts, people, because seriously, this case is going to make you scratch your head and shout, what? Multiple times. If you're a fan of a good whodunit or the board game clue, then this episode is for you, my friend. Um, Before we get started, I just wanted to do a little bit of housekeeping. So first things first, my 100 follower Valentine's Day giveaway. Thank you to everybody who participated. I wish you all could win, but alas, there can only be one winner. So, with that being said, congratulations, drumroll please, Marvy! I will be in contact with you shortly to find out the best way to get that $40 gift card to Cinemark over to you. Let's give her a round of applause. Everybody clap for Marvy! If you didn't win, don't be discouraged. I will host another giveaway at some point. If you didn't even know we were having a giveaway, then you need to follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Click the notifications alert so you will be notified every single time I post or do a story. I don't want you to miss out on these incredible prizes. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com if you want to binge 69 episodes of yours truly. Before I start today's episode, I just wanted to give a shout out to the ladies over at one of my favorite podcasts, Let's Go to Court. Um, they provided me with the, the majority of information that I'm going to be using today. They really dive into the court aspect of this case. So if that is something that intrigues you, I would definitely recommend swinging over to their side of the podcast universe and give them a try. So without further delay, let's get started on today's case. All right. Get in a time machine with me, close your eyes, and transport yourself back in time to September 16th, 1922. A field on a New Jersey farm, a tender, loving couple walks down a dirt path arm in arm when they stumble across a peculiar sight. At first, they don't know what to make of it. Their minds were probably racing. There was most likely a delay process of what they hoped that they were seeing versus what they were actually seeing. But when they finally came to reason, they realized that there were two dead bodies before them and that those two dead bodies belonged to people they actually knew pretty well. Because these people were prominent members of the community. One of the bodies belonged to a local minister named Edward Hall, and the other belonged to a woman named Eleanor Mills, who was considered the glamour girl of the church choir. 
They were lying on their back next to each other, almost as if they had been star or cloud gazing. Eleanor's hand is positioned on Edward's right thigh, and her head is resting gently atop of his arm. Edward had been shot in the head, but that wasn't noticeable right away because his hat was covering his face, almost like he was taking a little snooze. Only when the hat was removed did they see the wound and his perfectly positioned glasses still resting upon the bridge of his nose. His calling card was at his feet. Eleanor had been shot three times in the head. Her throat had been slit from ear to ear, but this wasn't immediately noticed either because there was like this ascot type scarf that was gently wrapped around her neck, concealing the wound. And get this, they didn't even realize this at first. So the two were buried and then they were exhumed because the police wanted to do a second autopsy. And it was at that second autopsy four years later that it was discovered that her tongue had been removed. Ugh, crazy. Yeah, this is one of those moments where I told you you'd be like, what? All right. So Edward isn't wearing his watch, but there's money in his pocket and his wallet was found nearby torn up love letters containing the steamy details of their affair were found scattered over the two bodies. In one article, it said that it was for sure love letters penned by Eleanor, but many other articles argued that it was unsure who had written them at all. Regardless, I think it suffice to say that this horrific scene had been staged to make a big statement. But who was the director who constructed this disturbing scene? And what was the reason why? All right, here's the thing. These two were married, but not to each other. They were having an affair. The couple rushes to the nearest home and calls the police. The police and coroner arrive, and based on insect activity, they are able to determine that the bodies had been there for about 24 hours. The police obviously wanted to get started on this case right away. I mean, even in the 1920s, they knew that the foundation of their case was dependent upon how they handled the investigation at the beginning. And this is probably the most exciting, albeit disturbing, thing that has ever happened in this tiny town in New Jersey. But there's only one problem. The murder and the bodies are located on the border of two counties, and the two police departments are fighting over whose jurisdiction it belongs to. Both of them want it because this is going to be like a high-profile case, like you just already know. So there's this huge argument about who the case will be assigned to. So while the departments are arguing about whose pee is bigger than whose, word gets out and people from both counties and people from all over the country really clamor into the small town to catch a peek of this crazy staged crime scene. This is also one of the first cases in the history of America that journalists had the assistance of a telegraph to get news back to their towns in relative real time. I mean, certainly not real time to the modern standard, but to people in the 1920s, this was huge. So the media shows up and tramples all over the crime scene, no doubt covering up any footprint evidence that could have been useful. Um, 
Some of the reporters saw the calling card at Edward's feet, so one of them picks it up with his stupid hands and gets his stupid fingerprints all over it. Then, not only that, but he then proceeds to pass the calling card around to all of the other journalists, and they're getting their little grubby hands and fingerprints all over that bad boy. Then the bodies were placed underneath this cran apple tree. Like that's where it was staged. So get this. Some Einstein decides it would be a fabulous idea to literally dig up this cran apple tree by the roots, hack it up into little pieces, and sell the pieces as souvenirs. Oh my gosh. Are you serious? I have to laugh to keep from crying. This is my nightmare, my absolute cringiest nightmare. I literally want to die. Eventually, the police sorted out the jurisdiction issue. The department who lost went home with their tails between their legs, and the department who reigned victorious was immediately humbled after they saw the state of their disturbed crime scene. But they tried to not let it get them down. They put their efforts and sights on finding the murder weapon. But of course, all these reporters and looky-loos weren't just going to sit back and let the detectives do their work on their own. No! They wanted to help. And that's help in quotes because they all got rakes and hoes and shovels and just started digging up that field. Wow. Wow. Thank you for that, idiots. But I mean, the cops did let them, so I guess they're idiots too. (laughs) All right, there were two wells on the property, so those were searched out as well. Nothing turned up. When nothing turned up, reporters and rubberneckers got a little bored. I, I mean, as you would, right? Like, this is supposed to be an exciting murder case. And, like, this is just so boring. Um, They went over to this farm that was located on the property, and they just started raiding and looting that property again for souvenirs. Now, I know this might surprise you, and I'm almost a little hesitant to share this news with you, as I know how devastated you all will certainly be, but all of that walking around and digging up stuff and selling things as souvenirs, it, um, it destroyed the crime scene. Yes, yes, I know. It came as a shock to me as well. All right, so let's rewind a little bit and learn about our two victims and, you know, what they were doing, what activities and people they were involved with, particularly when it comes to the days leading up to their tragic murders. So, like I said, Eleanor sang in the church choir where Ed was the minister. And this affair was not really secret. They never really came out publicly about it. It's not like they held hands like during the sermon. But when police questioned congregants, it didn't really come as a big surprise to them. Um, There had always been like these hushed, whispered rumors going around for quite some time about this whole scandal. So members definitely suspected it. People knew what was up, especially Eleanor's neighbor. When questioned by police, she was like, oh, yeah. Those two have something going on. As soon as James, who is Eleanor's husband, leaves for work, Ed comes right on over and he parks his car over there and the two romp in the hay until just before James comes home. In fact, the only two people who seemed in the dark about the whole thing were Eleanor's husband, James, and Ed's wife, Frances. They claimed they had absolutely no idea that this affair was taking place. 
Eleanor's husband, James, said about the day before her death that Eleanor left the house without telling him or either of his teenage children. Once it got late, obviously he began to worry, so he went to the church to see if she was there, but she wasn't. So he just went back home and went to sleep. You know, as you do when your spouse is missing. Um, He claims that she would do this sometimes. Um, She would just leave and be gone for a day or two, but that she'd always come back. Even though this was decades before cell phones, I feel like you'd worry. People worried in the 1920s, right? Like, (laughs) if Brian didn't come home today, I would be freaking out. There is literally no way in hell that I'd be able to cozy up with a good on with a good old book and get my snooze on that's just like not in my nature to not panic I go from zero to a hundred real quick and if I ever went missing and found out that Brian just went to sleep well I'll tell you what I might not be murdered but there'd be a dead body in the Campbell household real soon (laughs) When police questioned Frances, who was Ed's wife, she said that Ed actually did tell her that he was going to go see Eleanor. But Frances said she was under the impression that he was meeting with her to discuss a medical bill because Ed had actually um, paid for Eleanor's kidney surgery in installments. And so they were going over to like talk about it and meet about it. But you might be thinking, how could a minister of a small congregation in a small town in New Jersey afford to pay for such a costly surgery. Well, long story short, the dude married up. His wife, Frances, came from a very wealthy and prominent family. Um, It's rumored that they were related to the Johnson & Johnson family, but as this is an old-timey case, it's really hard to say exactly where her family got their money from. The house Francis and Ed were staying in at the time of his death is now actually owned by Rutgers University and is used as a dean's office. So, yeah, it's real fancy, okay? So, anyway, basically this Ed guy agreed to pay for his mistress's surgery using the funds of his rich wife. Yeah. Douchebag to the utmost degree. Back to Frances, she claims when Ed didn't turn up that night, she was worried. So she knocked on her brother's door. Her brother had been living with them for like a couple of weeks. And she's like, Ed's not home and I'm kind of worried. Frances claims she and her brother went down to the church together. But when they arrived, there were no lights on. Then Frances says, maybe I got confused. I thought that they were meeting at the church, but maybe Ed actually went to Eleanor's house to meet up with her. So she and her brother go over there. But just like the church, all the lights are off. So they go back home, and the next afternoon, Frances officially makes a missing persons report. Every reporter on that side of the Mississippi was covering this case. It was crazy scandalous. I mean, it's too good. Like, if a writer came up with it, you'd think the novel was, like, super cheesy. But no, this was real life. Police continued to cover the case, but they had a lot of disadvantages. Clearly, both of these spouses had a motive, but... Without evidence, they couldn't really go forward. As a Hail Mary, investigators petitioned to have the bodies exhumed and have another autopsy performed, but nothing new is discovered on the bodies except for the fact that 
Eleanor's tongue was missing. How did you miss that the first time? I don't understand. Anyways, finally, police caught a break. A young man, after being interrogated for hours, confessed that he knew who did it. It was his friend, Clifford Haynes. He told the detective that Clifford went for a walk past the field that night, and he had spotted two figures in the distance. He mistakes them for the girl he had a crush on and some other dude. So he's just pissed. He's raging. So he murders them both. And so basically, this person claims his friend Clifford killed them by mistake, like a case of mistaken identity. It's not a bad story. I mean, it's easy to infer that unless there was a full moon out that night, it would have been pretty dark out on a field near a farm in New Jersey in 1922. I mean, there weren't streetlights and stuff. Okay, okay. Doesn't seem like too crazy of an explanation, but does it hold any real water? Based on that story, most likely as a desperate plea, because like, the police officers are scrambling. They know that the community wants answers and they are not giving them any. So they're getting a lot of heat on their side too. So the district attorney charges Clifford Hayes with double murder. So normally when a lot of media attention sets its sights on a case, it's bad news for the defendant. But in this particular case, it ended up being awesome for Clifford Hayes because this story comes out nationwide and people all over the country are like, whoa, 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 slow down. If this was just a crime of happenstance, then, or like a case of mistaken identity, then why stage the bodies? And where did all the torn love letters come from? No, this case was not a case of happenstance or spur of the moment or mistaken identity. This case was obviously premeditated. There was a lot of planning to have everything just so. And so it doesn't really make sense if the story about Clifford Hayes is true, couch potato sluice of the 20s, we salute you. They were super suspicious of the detective who questioned the person who confessed for hours. So when that guy, the officer who interrogated that man, walked around in town, people literally threw stones at him. Like, not metaphorically, literally. They said mean things to him. They called him nasty names. Nobody liked him. They were sure he was a crooked cop. So, yeah, they threw stones at him, literally. People across the nation believed in Clifford Hayes' innocence, so much so that a fund came out and they raised a buttload of money for his defense team. Within three days, the young man who gave the confession against his friend recanted and all of the charges against Clifford were dropped. So now the police have to go back to the drawing board. So they begin to look more closely at the two people who had motive to kill Eleanor and Ed, the two spouses of the deceased. But again, while there is plenty of motive, there's just no evidence whatsoever for them to work with. Probably because looky-loos and journalists freaking stole all of it. It is at this time that a new witness comes forward, Jane Gibson. She is a 50-year-old hog farmer and the media nicknamed her Pig Woman. The media had a lot to say. Some newspapers and news outlets reported that she had been a previous carny, like one of those people who stars in those side-of-the-road freak shows, like the woman with the beard. The media basically came for Jane. They said that she was this dumb, 
old pig woman who was sleeping around with everybody. And one time she brought her son to something and the media wrote, quote, her son of unknown paternal origin, yada, 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 just plain rude and condescending. So anyway, Jane comes forward and the bodies were actually found on her property. So you know that property that all the reporters and looky-loos were like going through and stealing stuff from? That was her house. Okay, so she comes forward with a story about the night in question. She says that she was in her home and her dog started barking wildly. She thought, oh my gosh, someone is out there trying to steal my crops or my pigs. So she gets on her mule to try and find, yeah, a mule. She gets on her mule to try and find whoever her dog is barking at. And she ends up finding the guy. A chase ensues, taking her over to the area the bodies were later found the next day. She claims that it's at this point that she saw four people. She says that she saw two men and two women. It's dark out though, so she doesn't really get a good look at faces or anything, but she says that from the shapes of the bodies and the sounds of their voices, she could tell it was definitely two men and two women. They were all standing. Then she hears gunshots. So now Jane or pig woman is like, nope, not today, not today. So she takes off on her mule back home, but as she makes her escape, she hears a woman's voice say, Henry, So, it's worth noting that Frances, Ed, the minister's wife, had a brother named Henry and also a cousin named Henry who lived semi-nearby. Jane claims that she approached police the very next day with her statement, but they basically told her, Get out of here, you dang pig woman! Get your snout out of here! The other thing they said is that it doesn't match what they knew based on the evidence on the bodies because while they didn't know much, they did know that her story was inconsistent with Ed's gunshot wound. Apparently, he had been shot in such a way that would have been impossible to do so with him standing. However, like somehow they knew that he was lying down on his back when he was shot. But many people in the community believe that there might be some merit to the story. And so awesome, right? We got an eyewitness to at least part of the crime potentially, right? Here's the bad news. Jane Gibson loved to tell a good story. She told her story to everybody. And every time she told her story, it got a little bit better. (laughs) This reminds me of my mom. She's like the queen of embellishments really likes to paint a picture, even if it isn't true. So at first, Jane claims she couldn't really see anything because it was too dark. This then morphs into she could see a little better because there were actually cars there with their headlights on the people. And then this morphed into she knew for sure one of the figures was Francis and the other one was definitely her cousin or or maybe her brother. Oh, yeah. And there's this one more thing that just came to her right now. Uh, She didn't just hear a woman say Henry. She also heard a voice exclaim, well, how do you explain these notes? Oh, and another thing. Eleanor at one point tried to escape, but they ran after her, dragged her back. Then Pig Woman claims that when she was fleeing the, the scene of the crime, her moccasin fell off when she was riding that mule. So at one in the morning, she went back to get her shoe because like, you know, every Cinderella needs her shoe. This time she sees Francis knelt down beside her husband's body and she's weeping. Okay. Okay. No, no, 
That did not happen. And it turns out we're not the only ones smelling some hog bullshit because the people who knew her best were also kind of like, I don't know. Her neighbor, so Jane Gibson's neighbor, saw her the next morning after these bodies were discovered. And the neighbor claims that Jane didn't tell her any of these stories. And with Jane's history of wanting to tell a good tale, that seems pretty out of character to just sit on some steaming hot tea. Another small detail, when Jane came forward to police, she claimed she was the widow of a minister. But Jane was not a widow. Her husband was very much alive, and he was also not a minister. (laughs) It seems people didn't want to believe it, but they also wanted answers, and this is what they had. When uh, Jane finally talked to police, she said that she witnessed Henry, Francis's cousin, shoot the couple. So after a few years of just no answers, still no concrete evidence they could take to trial, there's a break in the case. At the time of the deaths, Francis had a maid named Louise. Louise no longer worked for the halls. She had gotten married, but her marriage had gotten a little rocky because a few weeks prior, her husband had asked for an annulment because he was just sickened and disgusted with Louise. He claimed that before the deaths, Louise had learned about the fair and she had told her boss Francis about it. He claims that Louise knew about the double murder and who had done it, but that she had stayed silent about it out of loyalty to her boss. The husband also claimed that Francis had paid Louise $5,000 in hush money. Louise was like, no, girl, no, that never happened. That's completely false. Uh, But some people kind of believed it. One of those people was the governor of New Jersey. So he assigned a special prosecutor to look into it. Four years after the murders... Frances, her two brothers, and her cousin were all charged with the murders of Eleanor and Ed. They all pled not guilty. I'm not going to go too deep into the trial itself because I just don't think I could do it justice. Again, if you are interested in that, you should totally listen to Let's Go to Court with Kristen and Brandy. They are incredible. Incredible. Um, I will give you a few of my favorite highlights, though. All right. So there were 157 witnesses. How? I couldn't tell you. But what I can tell you is that Jane Gibson, a.k.a. Pig Woman, well, let's just say she understood the assignment. (laughs) Because at the trial, Pig Woman stole the show. I wish I could have been there. So she was brought into the courtroom to give her testimony on no less. I can't even say this without laughing. Okay. She was brought in the courtroom to give her testimony on a stretcher. Yes. She was brought in on a stretcher because she said she wasn't feeling too well. All right. Jane began telling this whole story about dog barking and this epic mule chase seeing the four people people later going back to get her shoe where she saw Frances crying over her dead husband's body in the middle of the testimony her own mother who was in the gallery stood up pointed to Jane her daughter and yelled you're a liar nobody listened to her she lies (laughs) oh my gosh can you imagine so 
think it goes without saying, there goes the credibility of their star witness. Then Francis's love letters were subpoenaed, but they couldn't be entered because Francis's shitty daughter had sold them to a reporter for 500 bucks. I don't really know why they would have wanted Francis's love letters, maybe to compare the handwriting to the torn love letter confetti that was disturb that was dispersed at the crime scene. That would be my best guess, but I honestly couldn't tell you. I don't know. I think that they were just kind of grasping for straws at that point. Um, the trial lasted 32 days. The jury deliberated for five hours, and they ended up finding Francis, her brothers, and her cousin. What do you think? Not guilty. All of them were acquitted. By the time the trial was over, it was the most covered trial in American history up to that point, of course. To this day, the murders of Eleanor and Ed remain unsolved. So I'm curious, who do you think is responsible for this double homicide? It seems like the police really, really set their focus on Francis, but they didn't seem to hound Eleanor's husband, James, like at all. When asked later about this, um, the lead detective said that there, quote, was no need because he was a harmless, dull, little fellow, end quote. Everybody was under the impression that James was too much of an idiot to A, do something like this, and B, get away with it. But as history and evidence has repeatedly shown us on this show, you don't have to be smart to kill somebody. You don't. You just don't. You do have to possess some intellect in order to not get caught. But in this instance, I think it's definitely possible that James was involved or that Francis and James were involved and they just kind of snuck through the cracks. I mean, with the DNA collection not really being a thing, the crime scene so it was just messed up. That scene was so tampered with a lot of evidence was missing or sold. There were no credible witnesses at the scene of the crime. And honestly, like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. So it would make sense to me if Eleanor's husband, James, did it. That would make sense to me. Eleanor was shot three times in the head and then her throat was slit. This is complete overkill, which makes me suspect that Eleanor was the prime victim and that Ed was just kind of like an an afterthought, or he was killed to get him out of the way so that the murderer could get to who they really wanted to get back at. It might not have anything to do with smarts and everything to do with good old plain dumb luck. Do you think it was Francis? Do you think it was James? Do you think it was both? Do you think it was Henry, Francis's cousin, or her brother? Do you think it was a congregation member who was tired of seeing these two get away with something they deemed sinful. I mean, a lot of people knew about this affair. And I mean, I could totally see some sort of vigilante, justice-seeking, religious person killing them to, like, get justice. Or could it have been um, just, like, one of those creepy cases like the Zodiac where just Two people were messing around on a lover's lane and someone was there waiting for an opportunity. They didn't really care who it was. But the letters, those torn love letters, I have to believe that these torn pieces of confetti hold the clues. 
almost 100 years has gone by. This happened in 1922 in September. It's coming up. 100-year anniversary. I don't think that we'll ever really know the answer to who killed the torn love letters couple. But honestly, wasn't this case wild? I can't believe it hasn't been turned into a movie. (laughs) There was a novel inspired by the case, and that was turned into a movie. But screw the novel. You can't make stuff like this up. Just make a film about this case in its purest form. It's already gold. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. You know what I mean? If you're interested in learning more about this case, I always post my sources in my show notes. There is also a walking tour that just opened up. Tours are about 90 minutes and cost $10 per person. And I will post the link in my show notes as well. But let me know what you think. I made a post on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, and there you can post your comments, thoughts, theories, and opinions about the cases that we cover today's and any of the ones that we've done previously. Send me a DM with a suggestion of an unsolved crime that you want me to cover on the podcast. I have gotten some incredibly amazing ideas from people just like you, so thank you so much. Binge my 69 episodes on either my website Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, just wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Listen to them there. Want to know how you can further support this podcast? Of course you do. Like I said, follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Visit my website, www.mysterystillunsolved.com. Leave my podcast a review wherever you listen. Okay, so this was just brought to my attention. Apparently... (laughs) I didn't even know that anybody had reviewed my podcast, but a friend told me like, hey, did you know that you're a 4.7 on the podcast app? And I was like, I am? And they're like, yeah, you've got like 15 people that made reviews. And I was like, what? Because I never have pushed this on the podcast before. So I was just so incredibly excited and grateful to those of you who just like went out of your way to do it without me even asking. Um, so thank you so much. But now I'm going to make like an official call out. If you could please leave me a review. I mean, hopefully it's good. Hopefully you enjoy the podcast, but even if you don't like it or you like it, but you have a couple of, um, suggestions for me, I am always open to constructive criticism. So please leave me a review. Tell me what you love. Tell me what you don't love so much because I, Okay, so I'm a Virgo, you guys. So I am a perfectionist. And so if I'm aware of a problem, I will work all day and night to fix it. So yeah, that's just kind of like within my nature. Um, you can also tell a true crime loving friend, family member, coworker, flight attendant, little league coach about me. Every referral helps with the growth of this podcast. But the best way to support would be to join me next week when together we'll discover, did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved? <laughs>